across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Here we are, ladies and gentlemen, attempting to extricate ourselves from a pandemic and a lockdown that has crippled many businesses, countless families, uh, and cost millions of jobs. As hospitality opens up and travel companies practically try to collect enough money to see them through the last weeks of summer, consumers are still being battered and bruised by unscrupulous companies every single day. Today, my ire is reserved for the greedy power companies that supply gas and electricity to our homes and businesses. As of October, they will be hiking their prices by as much as one third, increasing annual payments on average to households by as much as £150. At a time when so many people are earning less money, when so many families are having to cut back, when inflation is crippling so many businesses, This is surely an outrage and a step too far. And the reason? They claim wholesale prices have gone up by 50%. Well, how is that our problem exactly? Do you remember the last time they put the prices down because the wholesale prices went down by a percentage point? We'll be addressing the problem uh, coming up uh, with someone from the campaign group We Own It. I'll be asking him what the point of Ofgem is. It's meant to be a regulator, but it's operating more like a protector of the big energy companies instead of the consumers. We need to hear your stories of smart meters, of harassing phone calls, of forced direct debits and general bad behaviour from all of them. Because let's face it, the power companies now, the energy companies in this country, are pretty much a cartel and they pretty much act as they wish. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we're finding out what's going on in Germany, where a British embassy worker has just been arrested for spying and passing secrets to the Russians. A real-life funeral in Berlin, perhaps. And we'll be asking why teenage boys are 14 times more likely to suffer rare heart complications from the Pfizer COVID jab. Plus, as a special treat, we'll be heading over to Cyprus live to catch up with Tonya Buxton on her family holiday. We'll get the latest on her travel story and why the land of her family has become COVID crazy. 0344 Also, our after all but four criminals were removed from a Jamaica-bound deportation plane in the early hours of this morning. We'll be finding out just why you can't get thrown out of this country, even if you've committed a crime. 0344 We are, of course, the home of Common Sense. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here. It's the fastest-growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is a red letter day, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Yesterday we had a great show. We had some great calls. We did some great stories. Today uh, we're going to do the same thing. A bit of a campaigning feel to the show this morning because um, we're going to speak to John Bosco Nuobo, uh, who's a campaigns officer at We Own It, uh, which is a campaigning organisation which is looking really uh, to take back public control of some of the big utilities in this country. And to be honest, I used to think that privatisation was a good idea for these, uh, uh, these huge companies, but I'm beginning to be- think that the We Own It guys have actually got it right. John Bosco, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike, and good morning to your um, listeners. Thank you very much for joining us. I mean, this is obviously an issue which is affecting every single household in this country. Uh, I find it absolutely disgraceful that at a time like this, when everybody's struggling, when we've been through the, the lockdowns, people have got less money than they had this time last year. Um, and what really galls me is that Ofgem, which is meant to be the regulator of these companies, doesn't seem to be interested in protecting the consumers. Absolutely. I mean, you may have heard that um, just recently that um, the top earners at Ofgem um, have awarded themselves a million pounds in um, bonuses. And yes. of course, if you're getting a bonus, it means that you have done a good job, but you could not possibly be doing such a good job if up to 15 million families in Britain 
are facing um, increases of up to 150 pounds. And that is estimated to push up to 488,000 people into fuel poverty at a time where about 4 million people are already estimated to be behind on their bills. So this is just bad news all around. Yes. Um, I, yeah. Now go on, carry on. Yes, and I don't think that, um, I don't think it helps particularly just speak about the specific problem with Ofgem, and there is a lot of problem with Ofgem. I think there is a systematic or systemic problem here with the privatization of our energy um, infrastructure. The fact that um, companies like the big six energy um, um, generators and suppliers are able to make up to 1.2 billion pounds in profits in 2019, and then slush that money out into the, the pockets of their shareholders and not reinvested in making sure that energy is cheaper for families in Britain. Yeah. I think that's the problem. And the only way that we can fix that is by taking all of those services into public ownership. We could save £3.7 billion a year from doing that. And I just did a bit of back of an envelope um, calculation. <laughs> and I found that we could actually not, uh, rather than increase um, utility bills for families, we could cut it if we reinvested the profits into um into the system. Yes, because I know you guys are also campaigning about some of the water companies and some of the things that they get up to, because the water companies in this country are ridiculous in the way that they operate, in as much as this they aspect. charge you more money for taking water away than they do for bringing it to your house. Absolutely. I mean, they're, they're, they've been fined over and over and over again for poisoning our water, the our water, our waters. Um, they've been fined for a whole host of things, and they're costing us way too much. Families in Britain can no longer um, manage a lot of these bills. I mean, it explains the fact that people are going further and further into um, deficits on their bills and are, are unable to pay them. And I think, I mean, it's common sense. If the sole preoccupation of a company is to make profits out of a system, they don't really care whether or not you're able to pay it. The point for them is to increase the price to the level where it maximizes the profit for them. On the other hand, I think if we took these services into public ownership, we're able to invest in the infrastructure to make sure that we don't face the kinds of malfunctions that result in, for example, um, um, sewage being mm. into our, body, our water bodies. And we could also invest in such a way as to cut prices for customers. People are suffering. People are having a really difficult time at the moment. We're talking about um, A-levels today, and I, um, I notice you're not talking about it today, which is uh, welcome relief from all of the Yes, government. well, you know, I think about A-levels for me, uh, John Bosco, is that, you know, if you're a parent whose child is doing them, obviously it's a massive story for you. But if you're not and you don't have a kid who's doing them, it's, it's not that interesting, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, but it's, quite, it's actually quite relevant to the discussion we're having because if your family, if your household, about eight or 488,000 of them are um, likely to be pushed into fuel poverty by these increases um, um, that Ofgem is allowing, it actually has an effect mm. on the performance of your children, right? And already 4 million families are in really terrible situation at the moment. All of this has an effect on the performance of your children. So it's actually quite Oh, for relevant. sure. And also, don't forget, John Bosco, that this is coming at a time when many people have been spending much more time at home because they haven't been going to work because they can't go to work because of the, uh, the lockdown. So they've been spending more money already on their energy prices mm. anyway. Exactly, exactly. And this is the wrong time to do this. And of course, more importantly, it's the wrong thing to do. And of yeah. course, I've been saying the solution to, the, to this problem, as we all know, is to cut the middle 
person out of it altogether. The private companies are just middle people taking the energy and giving it to us and charging us astronomical fees yeah. for that. We should cut them out completely, build a national infrastructure that is controlled locally by local people, people that um, have been elected to do so through the local councils, but ultimately people that are responsible to you and your family, people mm. that will put you and the needs of your family first. Yes. That is because my problem with some of these power companies as well, these energy firms, is that they sort of do you coming and do you going as well, because we have to pay some kind of a levy uh, for green energy. Uh, we also have to pay any time they decide they have to do an upgrade, for example, to their infrastructure. We're paying for that. You know, any time that the price goes up in the Middle East for oil, we are paying for that. You know, there's nothing that we get back from them uh, in any way, shape or form. And then they force you into trying to get a smart meter put into your house and they get quite aggressive about it. I had to basically warn the, the, my comp the company Scottish Power that I that I have to back off because they wouldn't leave me alone. Every day they started ringing me saying, when are you going to put your smart meter? I said, I don't want one. I don't want a smart meter. I don't want you coming into my house. I've got no interest in it. And I had to warn them that I would complain to Ofcom if they didn't stop contacting me, you know. And people feel bullied by them uh, and they make you get a direct debit so they can take as much money out of your account as they want every single month. I think it's outrageous. It is outrageous. I do think that um, um, one of the main problems of these private companies is that they continue to operate on um, a technology that is quite old, on coal and fossil fuels. And regardless of what one thinks about the urgency of dealing with climate change, and it is extremely urgent, but the fact that the fact that they continue to operate on coal and fossil fuels makes them incredibly vulnerable to um, the fluctuations in the prices of those commodities. And we found that as we scale up renewable energies, we found that they're actually much, much cheaper than coal and, um, and, and fossil fuels. And I think that if we well, had... Then why are we paying a premium for them to try and use greener energy? Because we pay a green tax for them to do that. The vast majority of their energy is actually generated from um, coal and fossil fuels. So it's, I think it's if we had a system that put people first before profit, we could actually use a lot of the profit that is generated by the system to invest in what will end up to be cheaper for families, which is, which is renewable energies. And they're not doing that right now because they don't see the incentive in doing that. They're making billions of pounds um, in profits from essentially um, continuing to do the same thing they've been doing for the last 25 years. Mm. And that is part of the problem, isn't it? Because if people were to be made more aware uh, of doing something to save the planet, they should be made to do it because it's cheaper as well, because it's very difficult to convince anyone to do anything. I mean, I said this yesterday about electric cars. You know, if you make an electric car cheaper than a diesel car, people are going to buy it. But if it's more expensive, they're not. Absolutely. I think, and that's, that's the message that I think it's quite important for people to understand, especially in this particular instance. Because if we had an energy infrastructure that was run for people and not for profit, we could very easily make the decision to reinvest the billions of pounds that these companies make every year into energy, uh, renewable energies. Because not just because that's good for the planet, and it is good for the planet, but also because it is cheaper for families. Families would not be falling into fuel poverty as a result. And the people that are actually going to be really hit by this are older people. There is always the myth that you could switch from um, provider to provider because um, to find the best deals. 50% um, of people have never switched from, from provider to provider because it's the difference in pricing is not, is not significant enough. Mm. But beyond that, 
75 years old and older people are not able to manage all of this internet gymnastics that, right. uh, that it involves essentially to carry out this switch of rules. And they're the ones that do bear much of the brunt of these problems. They're our grandparents. They're our friends. They're our pe- people that we know from church and all of mm. um, all across our communities. And they're the ones that are carrying this burden. They're the ones that are dealing with fuel poverty. And it is, we have a responsibility, I think, to make sure that this ripoff stops. We need to take our utilities, our energy infrastructure into public ownership, and we need to do it immediately. And yes. Boris Johnson needs to move on these companies immediately. Yes, sadly, I fear that that probably won't happen. Um, so I'm going to ask you a bit more about that in a while. But let me talk to you first about Jonathan Brearley. He's the chief executive of Ofgen. We've asked him twice to come onto this show to talk to us. Uh, he's not available, funnily enough. He's probably busy counting his £330,000 a year money uh, that he gets and the 15000 uh, that he took as a part of that bonus you referred to earlier, a million pound bonus given out uh, to the people of Ofgen uh, for protecting the consumer. Uh, what the hell is he doing? You know, he's not protecting the consumer. He's, they've given us a statement saying, uh, he says, uh, I appreciate this is extremely difficult news for many people. My commitment to customers is that Ofgem will continue to do everything we can to ensure they are protected this winter, especially those in vulnerable circumstances. Well, I'll tell you what I can do with that. I'm going to do this with it and chuck it in the bin because the guy's a disgrace. He's getting paid ludicrous amounts of money. Uh, He comes from the former job of uh, Department of uh, Energy and Climate Change. And I want to know exactly why we have these people in place paying them loads of money from the public purse when they're no use, but as much use as a chocolate fire guard. Well, his job is supposed to be to um, protect users. And of course, if um, 488,000 people, in addition to 4 million people that are already behind on their bills, are going to be having to pay more and are going to be pushed into fuel poverty, he clearly has not done a very good job. And no. I think, of course, um, that should have implications for his job, in my view, anyway. But, um, but outside of that, I think I think that we should be looking at the issue quite systematically. And in some ways, people should be putting this problem on Boris Johnson's door. It is his job to protect families ultimately, and to make sure that our energy system, our water system, our transport system, all of these are protected against the profiteering of private companies. And right now, all of these are in the hands of these companies who have no interest whatsoever in providing the best service to people. Their interest is in making money for their shareholders. And a lot of these shareholders, and Mike, I imagine that you are going to find this really amusing. A lot of these shareholders are actually people in other European countries. So they're not even people, the, the profits are not benefiting. Well, my, yeah, most of, the, most of these energy companies are based abroad, aren't they? Exactly, exactly. They're owned, um, uh, for the most part, by people right across Europe. Yeah. I suppose. I mean, of course, I would not particularly be supportive of it being owned by British um, elites, elites either. I would much rather it's owned by the people, mm. the public of Britain, and run solely for um, the public's good. And it's definitely not happening right now. No. I mean, I suppose there will be some in the financial business who will say that um, a lot of people's pensions are tied up with these power companies in the, in the city of London, it might be that a lot of pension funds uh, have money invested in them, which could prove problematic, I suppose, if you were going to try and take them back into public ownership. I don't think so at all, because I think um, a lot of those pensions would be better protected if they were um, tied up in a public, uh, publicly owned and controlled 
um, utility. Because as it stands right now, they are quite vulnerable to changes in the prices of commodities, for example. And a lot of these pension um, funds are also guaranteed by the government in any case. Right. So I think it's quite important that that we don't allow that to be used as a reason. And what's actually quite interesting is that whose pensions are these that are being talked about? The very same people that now have to pay 139 pounds more for their energy than they paid before. Mm. Right. So essentially saying, well, you know, we have to protect our pensioners because uh, so we so we don't punish or take back these companies into public ownership. But we also have to punish those same pensioners by increasing their utilities by not taking those companies into public ownership. It just makes no sense. It's no. secular. And people are also already getting in touch with me to say, well, what about the standing charges that they, they get away with as well? Because they're not only putting up the prices of the actual supply of the power, but the standing charge, which makes no sense to me uh, that they try to get away with every single month, um, is madness, isn't it? It is madness. I mean, there are so many things that they get away with. Something I just I was just reading earlier about um, how sometimes they just take money from your account for no damn reason, yeah. right? And yeah. it makes no sense. And they get away with so much because Ofgem is not doing its job, and it's playing a bit of a. Um, its role seems to be to protect these companies as opposed to regulate these companies, yeah. and to protect their profits and the profits of their shareholders. And it makes no sense. I don't think that um, that we need of Gem necessarily, especially if this uh, public this service is run by the public, if it's owned by the public and regulated by Parliament, right? So if it's owned by the public, I think we don't need of Gem. And essentially, we could cut off that bureaucracy, millions of pounds yeah. that go to that every year, and then just take it into public ownership, run it for the people, run it by public servants who have just one interest: protect the people make sure they're not paying exorbitant prices for their energy and their water and their services. Protect the people. That is the name of the game. Yeah, absolutely right. So what can we do next, John Bosco? What's the next step in the campaign? Can we uh, get a few MPs on board? What should we do? I think that uh, a great many MPs are already on board. We're taking uh, taking into public ownership all of our utilities um, so that we can stop these private companies from extorting families in, in, in Britain. Um, I think that what we really do need to do now is put pressure on Boris Johnson. He is the man that has the essentially the golden key to solving this problem. He's the one that can, essentially, he can make the call today and cut these private companies out of our energy and prevent our, our grandparents and prevent families and prevent young people today, um, as we see with the A-levels, prevent young people that have been disadvantaged by being thrown into fuel poverty from all of this disaster that is caused by private companies extracting billions of pounds from our infrastructure. Absolutely right. John Bosco and Wobo, thank you very much indeed. Campaigns officer, we own it. And I say to you this, right? This is not about politics. This is about consumers. This is about people paying customers getting ripped off by foreign energy companies who should not even be profiteering in this way. This is a disgrace. Ofgem are useless, uh, absolutely and utterly hopeless. 
don't do their jobs. We pay them a fortune uh, to look after customers. Instead, they look after the suppliers of the energy that we use. And I think it's time that we made a stand. And you know me. I mean, I'm not generally in speaking in favour of nationalising industries. But in this case, I would say the water business and the power business, the energy business absolutely needs complete root and branch um, uh, changing. It needs to be made into something which is user friendly. It needs to be made into something which is affordable for people, ordinary people of this country, particularly those who don't have very much money to spend. They're going to put people's bills up by 30%. And some people will find that to be breaking point. They won't be able to afford to heat their homes over the course of the winter. It is a terrible state of affairs. It needs fixing and it needs fixing now. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Dr. Ros Jones, retired paediatrician, part of the Us For Them campaign group, because I can tell you this is a good story to get into because I've got teenage boys. Uh, many of you will have as well. We are now being told that they should get a vaccination against COVID. I'm very much against it until I know precisely what it is uh, that they are putting into my child's body. Right. Even though supposedly they've now told everyone over 16 they can decide for themselves. Uh, according to a report this morning, teenage boys are 14 times more likely to suffer rare heart complications from Pfizer's COVID jab. Let's find out what's going on. Ross, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. So, um, obviously, um, there are plenty of parents who are not at all unhappy about giving their children a vaccination. I, however, am not one of them, not least because um, I'd like to know what sort of um, effect it's going to have on, on a young child who may or may not be at much less risk from COVID than anybody else. Yes, I think you're absolutely right to be concerned. And I think many parents who are keen perhaps haven't seen all the information out there because the government seems to have always been saying this vaccine is safe, it's safe, it's safe. And they never repeat that according to the age group they're rolling it out for. And safety is always relative. So it's safe. If you're a 70 year old with a significant risk of COVID, then all drugs and vaccines have some side effects. Nobody would deny that. But if the side effects are rare and your risk is quite high, then your benefit from having a vaccine would outweigh your risks. But if actually you're a child, the lovely thing about COVID is that it's really, really uh, less and less of a problem the younger you are. Yes, exactly right. And as, yeah. far, and as far as the, um, the, the, the information which is available out there, I've been saying this now for quite a long time, you know, mm. there must be data, surely, that tells um, the government and doctors like yourself, you know, which kinds of people are more at risk from the vaccine, which kinds of people are more at risk from COVID? Because what we do know uh, is that everybody seems to be um, affected in a different way. Yes, I think you're right. And I think the JCBI, they have the same data that we have. This this report that came out yesterday in the Journal of American Medical Association had 15 children. It's a small case series. And they're saying, oh, 14 boys, one girl. But there's data from Israel. They've already had over 100 cases. And yet the JCBI didn't seem to, or the MHRA, take that into account mm. when they were deciding what to do. And on the CDC database, there have been over 350 cases. And they had about a six-fold increase in boys versus girls. It does seem to be more, be more the second dose than the first. And it does seem to get worse the younger you are. So the cohort of 16 to 19 is worse risk than the cohort for 20 to 24, but they're at more risk than 25s to 30s. So again, we're talking now about only giving one dose to the 16 and 17-year-olds because are the JCBI saying, well, the second dose wouldn't be safe? But at the same time, they're still offering a second dose to 
18 to 24s, who've got a 1 in 10,000 risk of myocarditis from the second dose. Now, that's not trivial. It's and then they'll not. say, oh, well, it's, you know, you get better from it. Well, you know, there are cases still in intensive care. Most people seem to get better. But even in that JAMA report from yesterday, out of the 15 of them, it said 14, their, their cardiograms or echocardiograms had returned to normal. But that means one hasn't. And are they going to have long-term heart failure in future, need a transplant in 10 years' time? I don't know. You don't know. They don't know. No. Which brings me back to the original decision made by the government and made by the, uh, uh, the, the scientists who two weeks ago said there was no need for 16 and 17 year olds to have um, the vaccine. Now they seem to think there is a need. And I don't know what's changed. I don't know what's changed either. There was a, a, a six month follow up came from Pfizer, um, but as opposed to the two month follow up. And then they said, oh, well, there's no new cases of myocarditis. But there weren't enough people in the study to pick up myocarditis anyway. So just following them a bit longer doesn't help because the risk from this seems to be in the first few days post-vaccination. But looking at the real world data where it's been rolled out to millions of young adults, you can see that there is a very, very clear signal of harm. Mm. And I think the other thing that's changed in my mind is that one of the reasons they've been putting about is they've acknowledged that children themselves are not at great risk. And in the first report from the JCVI three weeks ago, they were saying the only reason to vaccinate children must be for their own protection, and it wouldn't be right to do it for society's protection. But then that last week, they suddenly seemed to say, oh, it's good for society. Mm. And of course, if you've got a teenage child, you want them to be public spirited. And that's a wonderful thing to be generous and say, oh, I'll do it for the sake of society. Yeah. But again, this week, Public Health England and the CDC have both reported that the Delta variant, which is very transmissible, it is just equally transmissible by people who've been vaccinated as people who haven't been. Right. So you can't use vaccination to protect other people. The vaccine is for your protection. And the one thing it does seem to be quite good at is reducing hospitalizations and deaths for the vulnerable which is what it was intended for all along yes in which case let's think that's great but don't give it to people who aren't at risk of hospitalization and death yeah. on a phony argument that this is the only way to get life back to normal you can't go to a nightclub if mm. you don't have this it's it's coercion and it's it's not mandatory, but it's mandatory by the back door, isn't it? Well, really? it really is. And it's kind of propagandising the whole mm. issue because what they're doing with every additional kind of layer uh, that, they, that they put out there uh, is that they are convincing. I mean, my, my oldest uh, teenager, 16-year-old, about to be 17, um, said to me at the weekend, well, you know, I don't really mind getting it, if it because I don't want to miss out on anything. I don't want to not be able to do anything. And so they've bought this narrative, which actually is not even a narrative because they're saying it, but they're not doing it. And I know that's interesting. You see, the nightclub, somebody was asking me, if they think nightclubs are so dangerous, why can you go now unvaccinated? Right. They're, saying they're introducing this at the end of September. The answer is they can't introduce it without a, a bill through Parliament. Mm. Parliament's on holiday, so they don't think it's that urgent. <laughs> but I think they won't get it through because the Lib Dems and Labour and at least 50 Conservative MPs will vote against it. Yes. So what they're effectively doing is they're telling the public that we are going to make it mandatory in the hopes that lots of 18 to 25-year-olds, or now 16s, will get vaccinated. And then in the end, they won't make it mandatory. So you've been cheated into doing this. Yeah. And what if in that, that process, you are one of the very, you know, one in 10,000 who gets myocarditis and gets really ill, or the one in 20,000 who gets some thrombotic complication? Mm. And also the other thing is long term, we have no long term fertility studies, reproductive studies. Right. So if you're 70, well, obviously, 
it's, it's completely irrelevant whether it causes fertility problems. Right. But if you're a, a, a young adult who hasn't started your family, do you really want to take a drug for a disease that probably won't affect you, that you nobody knows? And they, the, the pharmacokinetic studies have shown that the vaccine is concentrated in the testis and the ovary. That doesn't mean it'll affect fertility, but, but we don't know. And it's right. not honest to but, say that it's safe. But that's my issue with, with, with the dishonesty that's going on, because, yeah. you know, let, let us have the information. You know, we're grown-ups, we're perfectly responsible, we're perfectly good parents, um, and our children are intelligent enough if they're going to make that decision to make that decision themselves as well, based upon what you're saying, but not based upon some airy-fairy notion of, oh, don't worry, you'll be fine. You know, that's, yeah. I'm afraid that's not good enough. Yes. Uh, and I think the... the other thing is also they're talking about rolling it out for 12 to 15 year olds for the protection of immunocompromised household members. Well, there again, if it doesn't actually prevent transmission, you may be giving your immunocompromised household member a false sense of security yeah. because the kids are still going to school and they'll still catch it because this is endemic now. And it's going to be around in schools and in the population as a whole for decades centuries to come mm. which is fine because they'll just boost their own natural immunity and that'll be good for everybody yeah but it won't protect the person who's immune compromised in your house and you can't pretend that it will no and, and the would... other thing they're not taking into account at all is the fact that presumably this has been swashing around schools for 18 months yeah. you know half of them will have had it and the other half probably haven't had it because they've got good natural immunity. And really, at the end of the day, they're not even offering an antibody test to check you out before vaccinating you. Right. Because if you've already had it, your risk of side effects will be greater. Yeah. I mean, as a paediatrician, Ros, I mean, what do you think is the reason why they want so many people vaccinated? Because I think I saw a figure yesterday of something like 75% of the population have now been double jabbed, right? Now, in yeah. most situations, that would be an amazing result. And yeah. you wouldn't be pressing to get everybody else vaccinated, would you? No, I, I think so. I, I, I think it's it's very bizarre. I think we've never had any vaccine in in my career where we've been having to bribe, effectively bribe people to take it. You know, all the I mean, I think the vaccine rollout here was I think the coverage was very high, much mm. higher than we were probably expecting. You know, ninety five percent of over seventies have had this. Probably ninety percent of over fifties, all the people in the high risk clinical categories. So we're left with the group who last October were never being planned to vaccinate at all. Right. Um, and particularly the under thirties. Um, you know, do they really isn't it shouldn't it just be their decision without all this pressure? Well of course. Absolutely right, because it makes me feel very queasy and uneasy in general about all of these people, particularly, you know, celebrities, politicians, people with absolutely no medical background or knowledge whatsoever, telling you it's the right thing to do. Well get lost, is my view. Yes. Well, I think in that sense, it's a bit like the masks. It was always to protect somebody else, mm. which is a very clever psychological manoeuvre. If it had been a mask for your own protection, then if you were frightened, you'd wear it. And if you weren't, you wouldn't. Mm. But because the mask is to protect other people, then if you don't wear it, you're selfish, you don't care. Right. It's sort of not very helpful in society. And the same is has been being put about at the vaccine. You know, you would do it for everybody's protection and you anti-vaxxers can go and rot in hell. Mm. And you think, hang on. Most of the people who've chosen not to have it, they're not anti-vax by any stretch of the imagination. They're just people who are actually thinking, hang on, this is a new drug with a totally novel technology, still in the trial phase, mm. not due to report till 2023. Are we really wanting to have this urgently if we, you know, if I personally am at relatively low risk? And to be told you're doing it to protect society when actually we know that it's not doing that because 
vaccinated people can transmit it. Mm. And because they have very few symptoms, they won't be staying at home because they'll think they've just got a cold and they'll be out and about. And that's fine because the people who need to be protected have already been protected by their own vaccination. Exactly. Very well put. Thank you very much indeed. Common sense uh, personified. Dr. Ross Jones there, uh, retired paediatrician, part of the Us For Them campaign group. It really is quite extraordinary. I mean, if you've got teenage children, I'd love to know what you're telling them and what they're saying to you. Because in my case, I'm saying I don't think you should be taking this vaccine. I don't think it's something you should volunteer to do. If it's made available to you, I think you should say no. Um, but of course, what they're also doing is they're making it possible for 16 and over uh, children to actually make that decision themselves. They don't need their parents to give permission, which I think is also wrong, because I don't yet still understand what it is that this government is doing. Why do they want everybody vaccinated? What is the point of that? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk now, though, to Rob Clark, Defence Policy Associate at the Henry Jackson Society, because some of you might have seen yesterday uh, on the news the fact that the Gurkhas, uh, uh, who have been demonstrating across the road, really, in Whitehall from, um, uh, from Downing Street, trying to get parity on the pensions front from this government. Uh, they've been involved in a hunger strike. Uh, they've, been, uh, they've, have, they've had their sort of cause very much supported by Joanna Lumley for a long time, the veterans and the Gurkhas who have been such great servants to our nation and to our armed forces are quite frankly being treated pretty disgracefully. Uh, let's find out from Rob what the latest is. Rob, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. It was rather unseemly, I thought, yesterday when the police kind of waded in uh, and told the Gurkhas to, to dismantle their little sort of tent that they'd put up, basically to protect themselves from the rain because they're sitting out there on the streets. And, um, you know, there are plenty of demos that they let happen. Uh, why can't they just leave the Gurkhas alone, for heaven's sake? No, absolutely. When we consider the demonstrations that have happened throughout lockdown, um, you know, ranging from Black Lives Matter to... Um, you know, uh, you know, Brexit and yeah. you know, the, the EU referendum. Uh, when we consider what what has been allowed to occur over the last sort of twelve and eighteen months, um, you know, this is this is not really on par with any of those. This is this is quite a critical issue to do with how uh, the government treat men and women in the armed forces. Yeah. Um, in terms of the gazebo itself that was taken down, what I find baffling. Um, I spoke to somebody about this about half an hour ago, uh, who was involved. Now, naturally, when you have any form of demonstration, particularly somewhere as sensitive as Westminster. Um, that alone on the steps of Downing Street, you have to apply also for permission weeks in advance. Yeah. It goes through Westminster Council. Um, and also you submit that with things like the risk assessment um, and any sort of uh, equipment or infrastructure you have. So yeah. the authorities have known about this for the last several weeks. And a gazebo, like like you mentioned a moment ago, is literally just uh, to provide against the elements, whether it be heat or rain. Well, right. So it's quite it's quite surprising that this has been uh, taken down, dismantled. Um, and it's almost like they're trying to, uh, you know, stop this uh, uh, peaceful protest or something, you know, yeah. as, as simple as trying to, um, you know, have equal rights for, for Gurkhas who have served this country for exactly. centuries. And I think I'm right in saying that that spot that they're on has previously been occupied. And I don't know whether it still is uh, by a group of veterans who have been there for quite a long time anyway. They're sort of slightly behind one of the walls across the road from Downing Street. Um, yeah. And they're just serving veterans who are now homeless um, and who are just really trying to draw attention to their plight by, by, by living there. Yeah, it's quite frankly quite uh, quite disgraceful. Um, the government are very uh, quick and very very uh, very easy at saying things like you know we, we invest in our people, um, you know we invest in, in our in our men and women in the armed forces. But when it comes to it, um, I think the the MOD's official press release statement earlier regarding the 
dismantling of the, the gazebo for the Gurkhas, the, the official response was something along the lines of, you know, we're, we, we've long committed to, you know, supporting the rights of, uh, of you know, the Gurkhas and their mm. families when they resettle here in the UK. Um, now, the wider issue on this is, is not just the protest, it's the actual, what they're trying to achieve, mm. and that's equal, equal pension rights. Yes. Um, this is something that uh, uh, Joanne Lumley back in 2009 was quite pivotal in achieving with the Gurkhas being able to resettle in the UK, um, backdated to before 1997. The problem is the Gurkha Pension Service didn't account for this. So it's a 10 year difference between 1997 mm. and 2007. So that's roughly about 8,000 Gurkhas who are stood to lose um, in, in pension. And when we consider the difference between the Armed Forces Pension and the Gurkha Pension Service, it's somewhere between two thirds and three quarters. Yeah. But when we consider the amount of Gurkhas who uh, choose to resettle in the UK with their families after uh, leaving the armed forces, particularly down in Folkestone and Kent, mm. which, as you know, isn't exactly the cheapest place in the country, um, to do so on, uh, you know, substandard pension. The armed forces pension isn't fantastic anyway. It's, it's, it's good, it's okay, but it's not it's not amazing. No. And then, you know, they're receiving only sort of two-thirds or three-quarters of this to live in a county such as Kent, where they've got, you know, community connections. Right. Um, you know, they've been, you know, based there for, for several, several uh, decades in some cases. Um, it's really... Uh, quite an equality of justice, I feel. Yeah, absolutely right. Because, of course, uh, MPs' pensions are a far bigger number of uh, zeros on the end of them, uh, even if they've only been in there for about four years. No, absolutely. You consider as well the brave service that uh, the Gurkhas have given. I've, I've worked alongside the Gurkhas before many times in my military career, yeah. um, and they, they really do provide uh, so many intrinsic um, you know, positives uh, not just operationally, um, j just a quick one regarding Afghanistan. Mm. Um, when we went into Helmand, uh, the Gurkhas were a, a huge asset. Um, they were able to bridge a cultural gap between, say, for example, obviously like, you know, uh, you know, Anglo uh, British uh, soldiers such as myself and the, the cultural sensitivities around uh, ethnic, uh, different ethnicities in Afghanistan. The Gurkhas were that great yeah. bridge between. So, no, they provide many, many positives for the armed forces and continue to do so. Right. And is there any shifting at, at all from the government's perspective on this? I mean, will they, will they, why can't they just agree to, to make the, the parity happen? Well, I think it's a relatively small, um, in the scheme of, for example, the MOD's budget. I mean, the, the MOD is notorious uh, for having black holes in budget, particularly in regards to large procurement uh, options. So last year, obviously, Boris Johnson announced around the £16 billion mm. pound, uh, increase over the next four years for, for the MOD. Likely about 13 or £14 billion pounds of that will get tanked into um, existing uh, you know, arrangements for kit and, and infrastructure. So there's actually very little extra cash in the MOD. Mm. Um, unfortunately, um, this uh, the, the, the Gurkha Pension Service is probably relatively low down in the MOD's priorities. However, as we saw with Joanne Lumley and the, uh, you know, the, the public campaign behind the Gurkhas uh, back in 2009, uh, a story like this really uh, drives at the heart of sort of decency and of fairness and values and morals across the British public. So I believe, you know, if, if this can gain more traction and, you know, the, uh, you know, more, more, uh, more attention, mm. then you know the government may be forced to sort of uh, recede and canter on on what is a relatively small topic for them, but is is absolutely at the heart of justice and decency for the men and women of the armed forces. So so true. Very well said, Rob. Thanks very much indeed. We must keep up this particular campaign as well. Rob Clark there from the Henry Jackson Society Defence Policy Associate. The Gurkhas deserve much much more and much better treatment than they are currently getting and if they're willing to go on hunger strike because that's how strongly they feel uh, about the fact that their pensions are not as good as british soldiers who served in the same way as they did who served in the same places that they did who served for the same number of years as they did and yet somehow get more money well there's clearly something wrong with that and the government should wake up um, buck up and sort it out okay this is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
Um, it's not every day uh, that you get a British man who works in a British embassy in Europe accused of spying for Russia and doing it in exchange for cash. Let's talk to uh, Mr. Uh, Nigel West, intelligence historian, to see uh, what he makes of it. Well, Nigel, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, mate. This is a fairly uh, staggering story. When it broke this morning, it was one of those kind of slightly kind of breathtaking moments. I just thought, because you don't really know how serious it is. It's been in, it seems to be involving uh, the Met's counterterrorism command, German counterparts. He was arrested in Berlin on suspicion of committing offences relating to being engaged in intelligence agent activity. Um, what do you think's happened? Well, I think this is another manifestation of the intelligence war that has been conducted really since 2010. And that was, if you remember, the moment when there was a spy swap in Vienna and 10 spies who had been operating so-called illegally in the United States were rounded up. And there was an exchange, and that was when Sergei Skripal came to this country. Ah, yes. And that particular event was a brilliant coup pulled off by the CIA, it now turns out, because they wanted to rescue their star, <clears throat> excuse me, their star agent in Russia, who was in prison, and they freed him. Uh, and his name is Gennady Vasilenko, one of the most important spies of all time. And he was swapped by the Russians, who didn't realize his significance. They were duped by the CIA. Mm. Great coup pulled off. There was revenge, of course, taken by the Kremlin, which was Sergei Skripal and his daughter being poisoned, Yulia, uh, in Salisbury. Yeah. And since then, there has been this escalating Cold War style, pretty vicious um, conflict between East and West. And it, and it ain't getting better. And presumably the Russians have uh, have been sort of putting out tentacles and feelers into the uh, the diplomatic community all over the world. Then not just in Europe, but they've happened to have found one guy in the British Embassy in in Germany who was willing to do something for money. Well, we'll see how this plays out. But there is no doubt that the SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Agency of the Kremlin, uh, has been on the offensive. Uh, it was at a significant disadvantage in 2010 when its illegal networks, not just in the United States, but around the world, were rolled up. And the consequence of that is that they've been taking revenge. They want to reestablish themselves as a force to be reckoned with. And there is no doubt that they had to start from scratch and start pitching, start making recruitments uh, right across the world. And they don't discriminate. They want... Um, low-level, medium-level uh, sources around the world, and they're prepared to pay them. Mm. And there's been a few instances, haven't there, recently? I see from the story I'm looking at this morning that the German police arrested a Russian scientist in June um, who was working at a German university. He was accused of working for the Secret Service since uh, around about October 2020. Um, Italy uh, said that uh, one of their Navy captains was caught red-handed selling confidential military documents from his computer to a Russian embassy official. So there's been quite a lot of background noise going on here. Yes, and there's no doubt that the Russians are on manoeuvres. They're in support of the Kremlin's foreign policy. But you also have to see these competing agencies, GRU, Russian military intelligence, competing with the SVR and the internal service, the FSB, which also has an external role. And these are, if you like, robber barons 
uh, in a medieval court mm. uh, seeking the approval and approbation of Vladimir Putin, uh, who is essentially the monarch. Yes. It, it's very difficult for outsiders and criminologists, analysts observing from a distance to truly understand the dysfunctionality of what's going on in Russia at the moment. Mm. And can, I just, can I just remind you that Russia, although it has to be taken seriously, this is a country with the GDP of about the same as Spain mm. or Italy. And it was once described as Nigeria, but with snow. <laughs> very dysfunctional, very 30 worldy. Yes, and with, with presumably military capabilities much reduced from the good old days of... Uh, uh, of Gorbachev uh, and uh, and even, you know, the people that went before him? Well, the Russians are opportunists in their foreign policy and they've deployed their troops in Syria uh, and in Ukraine uh, and really as opportunists rather than exercising great military strategy and great military power. And the truth is that the, the Russians pose a greater threat to themselves than just about anybody else. Mm. And do you think this will lead to more expulsions? Because we had a sort of round of those in the past year or so, didn't we? And, and various European countries in America as well, throwing a few Russian diplomats out. Um, will that happen again, do you think? Yes, there'll be tit for tat uh, expulsions. And this hurts the Russians. And the, the more pressure that there is on the Russians, the more sanctions that are imposed on the oligarchs who are close to Putin, like the more difficulty they have with their American Express cards, their HSBC accounts <laughs> being closed down in Geneva. Yeah. They can't pay for their children to go to Winchester. Uh, they can't pay for the flights for their private planes to get to Cyprus. Their mistresses don't have the credit facilities that they used to. All of this is really hurting. Yeah. And this is the way the Russians fight back. So I'll be able to get a table at the Dorchester now then, probably. <laughs> yes, but you won't be able to buy a property in Belgravia. <laughs> and I certainly won't, no, no sadly not the case. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Nigel Wester, intelligence historian. On the latest breaking news uh, that we got this morning, a British embassy worker arrested in Germany for spying for the Russians, of all people. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.